turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges chapter 6. The book of Judges chapter 6. Now, again, this is Mother's Day, and uh, if there was a Mother's Day passage in the Bible that was specifically for Mother's Day, I would have preached it by now, okay? So uh, uh, there, there are none really in there. There are some passages that are a little more conducive to Mother's Day than other passages, uh, but this is my 15th Mother's Day now as a pastor here, and if there are any Mother's Day passages in the Bible, I've preached them, I think, by now. So this was a, kind of an interesting passage in the book of Judges chapter 6. So when, while you turn there, just hold your spot, and I want to say up front that this is a message that has application for those that are moms, but also for the rest of us who are not. A very interesting passage of scripture. It's going to be familiar to some and yet not familiar to others. This will be your brand new introduction into a very interesting character in the Old Testament. Well, I've got a shocking revelation this morning, and the revelation of this, I have never, ever been a mom. Uh, that is my shocking revelation. I've never been a mom. Uh, and so I can't say that I understand everything that you moms feel. I won't even try to, to, to uh, try to go there, but I can say this. I do have a little bit of experience around moms. I had a really good one uh, growing up, a really good one up until, that was interesting, uh, a really good mom uh, who went on to be with the Lord just about a year ago this month, actually. And, uh, and then I'm also married to a very, very good mom, Susie, to our three kids. And so I've got a little bit of experience, you know, kind of around what it was like, you know, both from the, uh, from the side of being raised by a mom and now serving alongside of one. And I can say, you know, just kind of the, you know, that from the outside looking in, it doesn't look like it's a really easy task. It doesn't look like it's very easy at all. It looks like there are probably some days that, uh, you know, you feel ill-equipped and unprepared and those kinds of things that go with it. And so today is a day where you're probably already thinking through all the stuff you got to get to later on today. And you're thinking, you know what? I don't know if I can pay attention to this whole entire message because I've got this to do and this to do and this to do and this to do. This Well, just try to lock in, okay? Hopefully this will be time well worth your investment as we look at just such an incredible passage of scripture here in the book of Judges chapter six. Whether you are a mom or not, whether you're a parent or not, all of us have been at places in our lives where we have defined ourselves by all of the wrong criteria, right? We've all come through times in our lives where our definition of ourselves, how we define ourselves, is based on all the wrong things, you know? For some, for example, for some of you guys, uh, you define yourself by your career. You define yourself by how you perform at work, whether you're moving up the corporate ladder or whether you're not. You kind of define yourself by that. Maybe you have your own separate set of criteria as to whether or not you define how you define yourself specifically. Maybe it's based on what you've accomplished. Maybe you define yourself based on, on what you've acquired, how much stuff you've got. You know, you used to have a little and now you've got a lot. And so you kind of define yourself as a, as a success. Maybe for you, you define yourself based on failures. You know, you look back over the course of your life and you define yourself somewhat as a failure because of the failures that you've experienced in your life, whether this past week, this past past month or you know, 20 years ago. And you define yourself, and I do the same thing as well at times, where we define ourselves by all the wrong criteria. We define ourselves based on what the world says a success looks like. We define ourselves based on how we perform. But what if I were to tell you that there is a way that we can define ourselves by a higher standard? Not by the world standard, not by our performance, not by our failures or our successes or what we have or don't have or have accomplished or not accomplished. What if I were to say that really the ideal is to define ourselves by a higher standard than any of that? 
And I know what you're thinking. You're probably saying, you know what, Brooks, I've got a hard enough time as it is meeting my own criteria, meeting my own standard. You know, for some of you that are moms, some of you, some of you that, that, are, that are dads, you're saying, you know, I'm defining myself based on my parenting and, and I don't really feel like I'm doing a great job and I don't feel like I'm being a success in that area. And you're telling me now that I've got a higher standard to live by? You know, I, I, don't, know what I, I don't know that I want that. Or maybe you're saying, you know, Brooks, I've been dealing with areas of my life where, you know, I sinned back in the day or I failed back in the day, you know, and I'm still trying to unpack all of the baggage that went along with that. And I'm still defining myself, but what went on by a choice I made or a weekend or a season in my life back there, and I'm still trying to get out from underneath the the weight of that guilt and that shame, and now you're telling me there's a higher standard that I need to live by? I mean, are you kidding me? I don't want a higher standard. I I can't even meet the one that I've set for myself. But, but here's what I want you to see, is that when we define ourselves by the right criteria, by the, by the higher standard than what we ultimately typically live by, that's where we find freedom that we just sung about. And that's where we find hope, and that's where we find joy, and that's where we find fulfillment. And by the way, that's kind of what we see in this story, this true story, in the life of a man named Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Some of you are familiar with Gideon. Some of you, you've never heard the name until five seconds ago. But regardless, we find his true story right here in the pages of the Old Testament. And so I want to walk through just a segment of that this morning. And as we do, I want us to see the criteria by which God sees us and the standard to which he seeks to hold us. And I think what you're going to find is that it's really, really good news. So let me tell you a little bit about about Gideon specifically. Gideon lived around the 12th century BC, all right? So we're looking a long time ago. We capture his story here, obviously, in the book of Judges. That's primarily what we find, where we find the information about Gideon. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament does speak about Gideon, and it re- refers to him in that chapter of the Bible that we call the, the kind of the, the heroes of the faith, you know, the, the faith hall of fame. Gideon's listed there in Hebrews chapter 11. So obviously he's held out as a key figure in the Old Testament. He didn't, you know, he didn't live life perfectly. He had his rough spots. He made his mistakes. He committed his sins. And you see that in Judges 6 and Judges 7. I mean, you kind of see you know, areas where, where he needed to grow and things that he didn't do well. But we find him as really a, a, an interesting figure in the Old Testament that God would use greatly at a specific point in Israel's history. And here's what was going on in that setting. The people of Israel in the book of Judges would often run through cycles over and over and over. And the cycle was this. They would serve God. They would honor God. They would walk with him. And then ultimately they would disobey. They would wander away from God. As a result of their disobedience, they would come through a season of chastisement, of discipline by God. Because God loves his children, and he disciplines just like parents do today. And ultimately, that would typically come by them falling under oppression. Some enemy nation or enemy king would come and take over. And so then they would begin to suffer under that oppression. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a deliverer, and they would begin to praise God again. And so that cycle would run itself through all the way through the book of Judges, over and over and over, like seven or eight times. You see that cycle run itself through. They walk with God. They wander from God. God uh, allows them to be oppressed. They come under, under oppression by the enemy nation. They cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. They're set free and they worship God again. And then the cycle repeats itself. Well, what we find here is that Gideon would be one of those judges that God would raise up. And he would serve as a judge over the nation of Israel as kind of their key leader before they had kings. He would be a judge for 40 years. And what we find here going on 
in chapter 6 is that Israel is in that place in the cycle where they're being chastised, they're being disciplined by God. And what has happened is an enemy nation has come in called the Midianites, and they are deep in the midst of this oppression, and the people of God are, are suffering because of their own sin. So let's pick up the story there. In chapter 6 in the book of Judges, let's begin with verse 1. We'll jump in, kind of move our way through slowly. So verse 1 of uh, Judges chapter 6. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. All right, so for seven years, they're being oppressed. This isn't a quick cycle. You know, it's not like, all right, we had two hard weeks and then God sent somebody to deliver us. No, this is seven years of oppression. Verse 2, it says, The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And so the picture here is a picture that is not good. God's people are suffering under the hands of the Midianites. Midianites historically were like longtime enemies of Israel. And uh, here it is so bad that the people of Israel are, they're like carving out for themselves little dens and rocks in the walls, you know, all, all kinds of places they're trying to hide out. Now we read that and there's a certain amount of distance for us. But just imagine for a second that when this service is over, you don't go back home because we're under enemy oppression and you can't go back home because they're going to find you there. So you have to go like somewhere over the south side, you know, you got to go out to Georgetown. Some of you drove from George, Georgetown. We call that North, Charles, or North Jacksonville out here on the island, I guess. But you have to drive all the way to the south side and you've got like a little plot of woods somewhere out there on the south side, a little place where nobody knows about. And that's sort of where your family's bunkered down. You know, that would be a miserable life, wouldn't it? You know, you can't be out in the open so much. You are hiding because of the enemy. This is exactly what they're experiencing. And days are not good for the people of Israel. For seven years, this has been going on. And the Midianites are just cleaning house. You know, they are overtaking the land of Israel. They're making life miserable for them. Verse three, it gives us a little bit more information. It says, for it was when Israel had sown, in other words, when they had, had planted their produce out in the fields, that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east, and they would go against them. So they would camp against them, and they would destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. Now, let's continue. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. And there were so many of the enemy. Uh, the Bible describes them as locusts, like just a swarm. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to devastate it. And so Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. What that verse tells us, verse 5 is that the uh, Midianites had a, uh, a pretty significant advantage here in this you know, warfare, if you wanted to call it that. And it's not the advantage probably you're thinking of. The Midianites had the feared weapon called the camel, right? The camel. I can see the fear in your eyes already. Camel. Uh, that, this doesn't sound too, you know, too intimidating for us. But 12th century B.C., and when you got an enemy nation with camels that go three, four days without water, what this did was it allowed them to be able to come in and over a distance, over a period of time, to just come in and wreak havoc and then come back out again very quickly. And that's exactly what they were doing. Israelites would plant their crops. Midianites would come in and just devastate. Again, you think, what's the big deal? Remember, this was an agricultural society, 12th century B.C., Israel. They lose their crops. They lose everything. 
For us in our country, we would understand that a little bit better in regards to our economic system. If our economic system collapses, I don't mean it just shimmies and shakes a little bit, but if it were to bottom out and to collapse, I mean, our country in a lot of ways is built on our economic system. You lose your finances, you lose your money, you have no savings, you have no banks, you have no, op- no, no way to operate financially. I mean, your, your access to the most important things in your life your transportation, your fuel, your food, your things that you need to sustain yourself and your families is going to be ultimately gone. This is what it was for these guys in 12th century B.C. Israel. And the Midianites were just absolutely wreaking havoc in the land, and there was nothing that Israel ultimately could do about it. Let, let's move ahead. Let's skip verse, verse uh, 7 and go to verse 8. It says that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. Uh, I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians, from the hands of all your oppressors, and I dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. Let me just pause there for a second. What, what this prophet is saying is he's reminding the people of Israel what God had done through Moses' day. And he's reminding the people of Israel that, you know what, there was a day when God set you free. And there was a day that God, when God was absolutely in control because the people followed him where he led. There was a day when God gave you freedom that you didn't deserve. Verse 10, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. What God is doing here is that he sends a prophet and he tells the people of Israel, you don't deserve freedom. You don't deserve blessing. You don't deserve honor. You don't deserve life. You don't deserve any of these things. There was a day when I set you free and I told you you had nothing to fear because I was going to be with you. And yet you chose to disobey me and you chose to go your own independent way you chose to kick me to the curb and the understanding here you can imagine is that when this prophet comes and speaks the people of Israel are thinking you know what we're done now because everything God's telling us through this person is exactly right we don't deserve freedom we don't deserve deliverance we don't deserve his blessing but this is where the tables turn because God has a really good way of holding back what we deserve and replacing it with grace And that's where Gideon enters into the story. Verse 11, we see that the shift focuses, or or, or rather the the, the focus shifts. I've been speaking English for all these years and I still get mixed up. The focus shifts, right, from the nation of Israel now down to a person, down to Gideon. Verse 11, it says, "So so the angel of the Lord came and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. Here's a couple things that are interesting that stands out to me. One is the, 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 the specific nature in which uh, this story is told. Whenever this, this story was captured, again, all of it true, whenever it was captured and recorded in the pages of Scripture centuries ago, and you find this all through Scripture, there is so much specificity, right? There is so much mentioning of names and places and locations that anybody could have refuted this story whenever it came out, so to speak, Right? early, uh, uh, many, uh, many centuries ago. But God chooses to detail people. He chooses to detail places. He chooses to name locations. And he does that. Why? Because his word is true. And he gives us information that cannot be refuted. And so God gives us a lot of information here. He says exactly where Gideon is located. He tells us exactly what he's doing. But he tells us in verse 11 that it's here in this specific location that the angel of the Lord comes. The angel of the Lord. That, that phrase is, is very, very significant. You'll see that phrase in the New Testament a lot of times, a little bit differently presented. Many times in the New Testament, after, after uh, the Holy Spirit is given, after Christ has already come, the Holy Spirit's given, you'll see that phrase, an angel of the Lord. 
But in the Old Testament, many times you'll find this phrase that says, the angel of the Lord. Here's the significance, that in the Old Testament, in most every single case, when you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, it is referring to what theologians would call a Christophany or a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, right? In other words, Jesus, we understand from Scripture, came at the beginning of the New Testament, if we want to say it that way. But there were times in the Old Testament where he would appear before he ever came in the New Testament. You say, I don't know how that can happen. Well, explain to me how God can come in flesh the first time, and then we'll have the discussion about how he could choose to come before that. There were times in the Old Testament where he would appear, and he would show up. You see it right there in the text. We don't have it on the slide, but if you look in verse 14, we find that Gideon refers to this angel of the Lord as the Lord himself. It's in all caps, a very clear reference to God. So this is God who has shown up in Gideon's presence. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself, who is eternal. He is God. He has come. And now he's sitting down in front of Gideon at a time of great need right here in this oak tree. Let me just ask you this question before we move on. If there was one area of your life where God, where you could just ask God, could you please just come and show up right here in this area of my life, what area would that be? If there was one area for you where you could say, you know what, God, my family, my family is, is hurting. You know, we're struggling or we are suffering or we're disconnected or whatever the deal is. God, could you just come and could you just show up here at my family or my marriage or my career or in the midst of my doubt or the midst of my fear, the midst of my shame? What area of your life, if you had the opportunity, would you say, God, could you please just come and show up right there? Here's the good news. This is one of the things we see in Gideon. We're going to move on in just a second. Here's the good news, is that God sees us at our deepest point of need. God knows exactly where you are today. He knows exactly how you feel, exactly what you face. He knows the dynamics going on in every phase of your life. And when we have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, here's the good news of Scripture, that when we know God through Jesus, he shows up on time every single time. And he meets the needs that we have if we trust him and if we know him. And so here's Gideon. The Bible says at the end of this particular verse, verse 11, that he is beating out wheat in the wine press. In the Old Testament, when you would thresh wheat, you would do this typically outdoors. The whole process necessitated that you would be in an open area outside where there would be a breeze or better yet, a wind blowing. Oftentimes it would be on the top of some hill, some exposed area. The reason that was necessary was because you would toss the wheat into the air and it would be that wind that would blow away the chaff, that blow away the husks and the unnecessary components that you would not use. And the grain, the wheat, the good stuff would fall to the ground. It'd be a process that would be played out over and over and over to the point to where ultimately what you were left with was something that you could use, that you could use to provide for your family. The fork goes into the wheat, the wheat goes up into the air, the wind blows away the chaff, and the good stuff falls to the ground. Here's the thing about Gideon. The Bible says that Gideon is carrying out this process 
not where it normally would be carried out, out in the open, but rather he is in a wine press. What was a wine press? A wine press was an enclosed indoor area where you could not be seen. Gideon is doing a function. He's performing a function in a place that was not designed for it. And the reason he is doing that is because he is not trusting in God's presence and he is walking in fear rather than walking in faith. Now, it doesn't mean that we just go out and run out into traffic and do all kind of crazy stuff saying, oh, the Lord's with me. It doesn't mean we do that. We don't put God to the test. But Gideon is here cowering in fear, just like the entire nation of Israel under the oppression of the Midianites. And as he hides out here, God comes. Look at what it says in verse 12. He makes a very interesting statement to him. It says, verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Here's what stands out to me about that particular verse. It's how the Lord refers to Gideon specifically. Now, if he had referred to him accurately, right, based on where he was, he would have said, uh, the Lord is with you, oh, big fat chicken, right? Because you're hiding out, you're scared, your knees are knocking, your teeth are chattering. God didn't come to him that way. You know, God came to him, speaking to him in different terms, different terms completely. The Lord, he comes and says, the Lord is with you, oh, valiant warrior. Now, let me just tell you this, that at this particular stage in Gideon's life, he was neither valiant nor was he a warrior, Here's the definition. I looked it up. Here's the definition of valiant. Possessing or showing courage. And it was at this stage, right, that Gideon chooses as an act of his will not to go out to the open, not to go out to the top, to the top of the highest hill to perform this function of, uh, 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 of threshing wheat. No, he chooses to hide out in a place that was designed for something wholly and entirely different. Why? Because he lacked courage. He did not have courage and he did not trust that God would be with him the way God promised that he would be. And yet the Lord still comes to him and he refers to him not just as a warrior, but as a valiant, as a courageous warrior. God calls him by a title that he was not. And here's the thing that we recognize to me that stands out, that God treated him not on the basis of who he was at the moment, but on the basis of who God knew he would become if only he would be fully committed to him. At that point, Gideon was not who God said he was. But God knew the end of the story. And God knew that if Gideon would only come to a place, which he would, where he would put his trust in God, and he would demonstrate that trust in God by following him, that it would be evident for centuries that he indeed was a valiant warrior. You move on to verse 14. It says, The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he, Gideon, said to him, Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. See, Gideon is judging, defining himself by all the wrong criteria. I'm the least, my family is the least, and I'm the youngest. Don't measure up. But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Some of you know the end of the story. Immediately following this, Gideon would, he would ask for a sign. That's kind of what he's known for. You know, he would ask for a couple of signs because he didn't take God at his word. He would offer God an offering 
He would ultimately take a step of bold courage and tear down an altar to a false god that his father had, and he would replace it publicly uh, to where people could see it had been replaced with the altar to God. And then at the end of this story specifically, it would be Gideon that God would use to set Israel free from the Midianites with just 300 men. God would whittle his army down to almost nothing so that when all was said and done and Israel was free, it would be evident not that it was done by one man, but it, was been, it had been done by one God through one man that was fully yielded and fully committed to him. So let me ask you this question this morning. How do you define yourself today? Moms, do you define yourself on how good a mom you are? Dads, do you define yourself on the success of your family, the success of your career? Do you, find your, do you define yourself based on your successes or on your failures? Do you define yourself based on how much you've got in a bank or how much you don't have of what you've done, whether good or bad? How do you define yourself today? Do you let others define you for you? Here's what stands out to me about the story of Gideon, among many things. One is that Gideon chose to walk in the definition that God had given him. And we still talk about him today. The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. So are you going to define yourself by all the wrong criteria? Are you going to today choose to raise the bar and say, you know what, I'm not going to let anybody else define me, and I'm not even going to try to define myself by any other standard except how God sees me through Christ and then define myself by who he says I can be if I'm fully yielded to him. Hey, listen, there is no telling what God can do through the life that's fully yielded to Christ. There is no telling what God can do in your family. No telling what God can do in your family if you choose to raise them in a way where you are fully committed to Christ. There is no telling what God can do in your community, in your business, in the things that you touch on a daily basis if you choose to be fully committed to Christ. And there is no, there is no way today that we can fully understand the joy and the hope and the purpose that comes and the freedom when we begin to lower the standard of the world and raise the standard of God and define ourselves by his criteria and not our own. So where do you need God to show up in your life today? If there was one area where would you say, God, could you just come here? Why don't you ask him to do that? Because he has a really good way of showing up in the places of our greatest need. But when he does, and he begins to do work in you that you didn't expect was going to come, just remember wherever he leads you, he's going to be faithful. Whatever he's called you to do, he'll equip you. And if you follow him, if you follow him with all your heart and every aspect of your life, you'll be able to understand the joy and the freedom that comes from his definition of you rather than the world's. With every head bowed and every eye closed, with no one looking around, I know for some today you've made a decision in your life in the past to give your life to Christ. It's the greatest decision you've ever made. You still remember where you were, all right? It didn't happen by accident. You remember the day that you gave your life to, to Jesus and trusted his forgiveness for your sins. But somewhere along the way, you sort of gravitated away from that. There was a, a point for you when you were, you, you couldn't have been any, any higher in your relationship with God. You felt such a joy and a freedom and a sense of uh, purpose in your life. But somewhere along the way, you've sort of navigated away and you've allowed other things to define you for who you are. 
Maybe for some of you, you're really struggling today because you define yourself over a failure or a series of failures. Maybe some of you feel such pressure today because the, the, the way you define yourself is by accomplishment. You always have to do a little more. You always have to strive a little harder, do a little bit better. And your relationship with God is, is really no, nothing more than just jumping through hoops to try to keep him in, you know, on your side to stay in favor with him. God never designed it to be that way. Maybe for you what God wants you to understand this morning is that, is that there is real rest that comes when you let him define you. When you allow yourself to, to, to see your life based on who you are in Christ, holy and righteous and complete in the sight of God. That doesn't give us freedom to just go and do whatever we want or just to slack off and, and just coast through life. It doesn't give us that freedom at all. In fact, if we really understand it, understanding that God sees us as holy and righteous and we see ourselves as he does, boy, that just really spurs us on to live a life of worship for him because he has every reason to see us in the worst of light, but he chooses to see us through Jesus. Maybe for some of you today, you've never given your life to Christ. And today you struggle to find who you are exactly. And you've, you've looked at a lot of different directions to try to find purpose and hope and meaning in your life. You've, you've banked a lot of effort on your career and your relationships or your successes. And maybe you've seen some of that really not provide what you thought it would. Listen, there is only one way you're going you're gonna to experience life the way God intended. And that is when you are fully yielded to Jesus. When you own your sin and then you hand it over to Christ because he died to forgive it. And when you choose to turn from it and say, Lord Jesus, just live your life through me. And there is no greater joy than comes with that. And so God, I pray today, whatever the decision may be that we need to make individually here, I pray that we'll follow where you're leading us. God, for the one who's just weary and tired of jumping through hoops trying to earn your favor, who's weary and tired from trying to base the, define themselves on all the wrong criteria, Lord, give them freedom today when they choose to see themselves as you do through Christ. And God, I pray today for those who don't have a relationship with you. God, I pray that they would choose right here this moment, Mother's Day of 2016, to make the only decision that will last forever in their lives, and that is to lay down their sin and to give their lives to Jesus. And so God, bless this time of decision we ask, that the decisions made right here in these next couple of moments could impact forever. And so bless them, we pray. Help us to get it right and to not miss this moment to follow you where you lead us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.